I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, we're on a personal journey to the end of the world and back with Mark O'Connell and his new book, Notes from an Apocalypse. Mark O'Connell is the author of To Be a Machine, which won the 2018 Welcome Book Prize and was shortlisted for the Bailey Gifford Prize in 2017. In 2019, he became the first ever non-fiction writer to win the prestigious Rooney Prize for Irish Literature. He's a regular contributor to The Guardian, The New Yorker, The Dublin Review and The Observer and Mark's latest book, Notes from an Apocalypse, A Personal Journey to the End of the World and Back, we're going to be talking about today. Mark, welcome back to Little Atoms. Thank you, Neil. Good to be back. So, obviously, Notes from an Apocalypse was written before we were all sat here in our respective bunkers talking over Skype in the middle of a tiny actual apocalypse, which we'll we'll come back to later on in the interviews. Let's just forget about that for now. At the beginning of this book, you talk about yourself being sort of always consumed by sort of feelings of doom and that the apocalypse is nigh. Tell us where that came from. Yeah, I, I mean, who knows psychologically where it came from, uh, but I, like definitely in terms of the kind of immediate sense, it sort of arose out of a combination of things, one of which I guess the major one was being a parent. I mean, I'd always been a sort of a relatively anxious person, I think, but definitely becoming a parent for the first time brought a lot of these uh, kind of anxieties in, into focus. And I mean, I guess I, I write about it in the early part of the book that sort of sense of um, a weird kind of tension between being a parent of a very young child and feeling that my job as a father uh, was in large part to sort of create the sense of like the world as a good place and a livable place and the future as a a realm of, you know, life and, and possibility for the child. And to sort of, you know, give my son the sense that like, you know, the world is there for you and the future is, is bright. Um, and, and the sort of conflict between that and just like looking at the news, basically, just like taking my phone out of my pocket and, and seeing what the push notifications held, what like what, what fresh horrors uh, were there for me. And so it was a real sense of like conflict between being a parent and also just being a relatively uh, sort of aware and engaged person and a sense that like there's a, a real tension between those two things. And I wanted to write about that. I knew I wanted to write about that 
for a while. Um, it didn't be, you know, I, I didn't know that I was writing a book about the apocalypse until quite a bit into the sort of process. And it, at a certain point, that kind of anxiety sort of transmuted into like all these sort of different forms, like getting obsessed with people building luxury bunkers and, and people preparing for the end of the world, like doomsday preppers and so on. That was the kind of avenues that my anxiety went down. And at that point I realized, okay, here's a subject. Here's a, a focus that I can bring to this anxiety and sort of put it into kind of uh, a coherent shape that might be a book. I mean, I guess nowadays the, you know, the major fear that weighs upon everybody's mind, especially I'm not a father myself, but especially on, you know, parents is the climate. I'm a little bit older and, and for me it was the Cold War, you know, the the sort of the impending nuclear doom that lived over all of my, from when I was born to about 14 or 15 years old. I guess there's always something, isn't there? There's, you do talk about this in the book, that there is always some apocalypse, there always has been. Yeah, that's sort of part of the concept of the book, I suppose, in a way, is to like try to be like focused on the particular ways in which the world seems especially dark at the moment with things like climate change and just the sort of sense of political fragmentation and so on, while also kind of bearing in mind that, yeah, like there's always something. Every generation has its own particular sort of apocalypse. Like for me, I suppose, growing up and, you know, becoming a young a young parent, uh, it was climate change, more or less. I mean, I do like, I guess I, you know, I'm 40 now. So I do like, I do definitely remember the sort of, I don't specifically, I guess I'm not old enough to remember like the, the actual fear of the bomb, a sense that like, this is a thing that could happen to me personally. But I do have a sense of like growing up in the kind of long aftertale of that anxiety, like in terms of like, you know, cultural things, like I was definitely aware of, of the Cold War as a as an influence over the culture growing up. And I, you know, I write about that in the first sort of part of the book, that moment where there's a, I guess it's one of my earliest memories. My um, uncle, for some strange reason, deciding that it was a good idea to explain to me at age six, what it meant that Russia and America were at loggerheads with one another and that they were like these two hyper nuclear armed states. And if they if they attacked each other, Ireland would be like right smack in the middle of these two giant superpowers and the bombs would like meet over our heads. At least that's how I remember it as a kid. So I do like I do remember having a sense of like, yeah, there is there is a threat out there. There is a peril. Um, but yeah, it's like, you know, every every generation, every culture has its own version of of the end of the world, I think. So you mentioned these doomsday preppers. And there's, there's a TV show, obviously. Um, who are these people? Well, I guess there's a couple of ways of answering that question. Like one sort of broader way to answer the question would be that it's really hard to say because they're everywhere and they're everyone. You know, I, I set out to kind of write about these people as a distinct group uh, when I was writing the book. But one of the things I found was that, you know, when you're writing a book, people ask you what you're doing and you talk about it. And one of the things that happened was that I would say that I was writing about the end of the world. I was writing about preppers and I kept encountering people who told me that they had some kind of bug out bag ready to go, some kind of like um, like a bag with water filtration tablets and like a gas mask or whatever whatever might be necessary to kind of get through a kind of an apocalyptic situation or whatever. And I met people who had bunkers and so on, and you know people who I would not expect to sort of meet the definition of preppers. So that's one way of looking at it. The other sort of more narrow way to describe them is that generally 
speaking, the people who identify most strongly as preppers tend to be a lot of them are American. It's it's a very like it is it exists everywhere. But uh, you know, in the book, I focus most kind of directly on prepping as an American phenomenon, and it tends to be like a very white, very male, um, very kind of middle class sort of pursuit. And so it tends to be quite like by almost by definition, like a very conservative kind of subculture, for want of a better term. Yeah, it's it's interesting to the extent which a lot of the the sort of strange masculinity of a lot of these American sort of backward peppers, which is that it's not necessarily nuclear war or climate change or, you know, a, or a comet that they're, they're scared of. It's equality. Mm, yeah. I mean, that was one of the things that kind of fascinated me when I started to dig into this was that like the way that I was going to say these people, but the, I think the way that everyone imagines the apocalypse somehow reflects a pre-existing ideology or an underlying ideology. And I think that's really noticeable with with the preppers with the sort of doomsday preppers because the way that they imagine the end of the world well it you know it, it could be precipitated by any number of apocalyptic scenarios whether it's a nuclear attack or an asteroid hitting the planet or uh russian hackers taking out the grid or something like what we're experiencing now a viral pandemic i mean it's, these are all there's a whole spread of kind of scenarios but the thing that they're really afraid of is not the bomb or the asteroid or the disease per se is what happens in the wake of that. And what they invariably imagine happening as a result of this kind of crisis is the collapse of civilization. Because for these people, civilization is like a really fragile edifice. People are basically, and it, like it's a very ideological and very political view and it's it's like it's it's very right wing in this sense, and the, and the idea is that society only goes so far. Society will only last so long in a crisis because really, what people are beneath the kind of veneer of civilization is animals, and people will revert to savagery really easily. And I kept seeing this fear or fantasy cropping up in all of these kind of apocalyptic um, obsessives that I was looking at, and. It seemed to me to be like really interesting because, you know, it's it like, as I say, it's a deeply ideological view of society. And it like it, it sort of became clear to me eventually that if that is your view, probably you are someone for whom civilization or community, for want of a better term, is not a very convincing idea in the first place. So it's a very like a lot of these preppers tend to be sort of very radically individualistic people for whom the government like the idea of the government collapsing is almost a kind of a, a thrilling prospect i think let's look at the the sort of far end of that phenomenon then and the, the the world of luxury bunkers that you go to a a complex in south dakota that's basically been bought by this um sort of a rather ridiculous hustler guy who um has has basically set up this this network of of, of former uh, military bunkers into the you know the prospect of luxury bunkers tell us about that place yeah i mean that was an amazing location first of all it was like it's this like vast it, it right now it's a dairy farm so there's like cattle roaming around everywhere um it was built initially as a munitions storage facility for the um US army and air force back in the 1940s during the Second World War. And it was built to store bombs, basically. 
Um, so there are all these like, they're not bunkers per se because you know, they're, they're overground, um, but they're sort of like overground reinforced concrete and steel structures that are spaced, you know, a couple of hundred yards apart. And there are hundreds of them. There are 555, I think, of these things. And it's like a vast area. It's the size of like, uh, it's almost the size of Manhattan. And it's just an extraordinary like visual sort of proposition, this place. And that was one of the things that, that drew me there. And one of the things that I was like most kind of keen to capture in the book is like just the sheer weirdness of this place, which in a way for me encapsulates the weirdness of this ideology and the weirdness of this business that's sort of exploiting it. So yeah, like this guy, Robert Vecino is his name. He's a former um, advertising executive, interestingly enough. And uh, he sort of pivoted around the turn of the century to being like a, a, a real estate entrepreneur, basically someone who sells sort of post-apocalyptic real estate, like luxury luxury bunkers. And this place, which is called X-Point, this place in South Dakota, he's basically pitching it as um, the place from which civilization will be built after a cataclysmic event. And this was only one of his. So so this wasn't even, I guess, the most luxurious of, of all of this guy's properties. What else was he offering? No, I mean, like this place actually was not luxurious at all. So the idea of this place is that like this was a bit of a, a bit of a switch up for him in terms of his market. So he's selling off these bunkers for like, I think it's 35 grand a pop. And um, <clears throat> the idea is that you would buy the bunker and that would also cover you for like the protection uh, that he would provide, like a sort of a private army patrolling the perimeter and but you would fix it up yourself to your own kind of specifications or whatever so it's sort of like a mid-range apocalypse solution but yeah like his previous uh businesses had all been luxury apocalypse bunkers so like really really high-end facilities in secret locations uh with like very sort of high spec like luxury specifications um you know private cinemas like wine cellars hydroponic gardens uh, some of them even have DNA vaults. So like sort of really kind of like really sort of fancy high end stuff for the kind of like discerning and, and well healed apocalyptic obsessive. To what extent is this? I mean, we're going to talk about Mars and the idea of, of these people wanting to, you know, start a new life in an off world colony in the second part of the show. And and that whole thing seems to me to be, um, if not a, a actually a grift then obviously a pipe dream does anybody buy these things is anybody living in any of these luxury but you know does anybody own any of his luxury bunkers um he like when i met him and when i went there he had sold only a small handful like a dozen or something like that but it was very early days and i think he's sold quite a few more since i don't think he's anywhere near at capacity so i think if you wanted to if you wanted to lay out 35 grand you would probably uh, find that there's plenty of plenty of scope for that I probably am out at this point. I, I don't think I'm welcome in, into this community. But um, so yeah, I mean, so it's like it's it's very hard to to tell how much of it is kind of smoke and mirrors. Like even with the with the sort of luxury high end places, like you can't go to these locations because they're top secret. So you have to kind of take it as read. You know, you have to kind of like give them the benefit of doubt to to a certain degree. And and like it's up to individual people how how much of a benefit of a doubt you would you would give him but he makes a lot of money like he do, he does seem to do very well and you know there's definitely a market for this stuff and the interesting thing is that like the more unpredictable and distressing things happen it seems that the more interest 
that drums up for a business like like Vivos. So right now, I think they're going through, and and this goes for like you know uh, preppers as well, and and like prepper companies, people who are providing you know canned goods for the prepper market and sort of various kinds of foodstuffs and so on. They're seeing like huge uptake in people buying their products, and I think that the same is true of um, the real estate kind of end of things, the coronavirus at the moment. Well, I mean, I was going to talk about get us to the coronavirus at the end of the interview, but uh, <laughs> what, what's fascinating to me is those exact people that you're talking about, those those preppers who, you know, hate the government, don't seem to be buying their prepper kits and going off into the hills to their cabins to avoid coronavirus. They're the ones with the guns out there right now demanding that they're allowed to have a haircut. Yeah, it does. I mean, there's a lot of irony surrounding this whole thing. And, and that's like definitely one of them, because it's not like it's not the apocalypse that they imagined. It's a very different kind of scenario. Like a global pandemic is definitely one of the things that preppers have been preparing for for a long time. And it's something that comes up when you talk about, you know, these apocalyptic anxieties with people. It's definitely one of the things. But no one like least of all myself and, and including the preppers who have been sort of preparing and obsessing about this stuff for a long time. No one, it seems to me, would have predicted how this scenario would play out. So like the typical prepper version of events would be that there's a pandemic, civilization kind of weakens, you know, there's a, um, the supply chains get put under strain. People start to panic. People start to like, there's civil unrest there's like violence in, in the streets. There's a lot of weakening of like the democratic structures and so on. And all of a sudden you've got like almost like a civil war kind of situation and it's every man for himself. This is like the classic sort of projection of what happens in a situation like this with preppers. And I think what we've been seeing is like the exact opposite of that, you know, obviously with some like fairly kind of um, like notable exceptions, uh, a lot of them in the US, it seems um, but in general, like we have not seen the collapse of civilization. People have not been like reverting to savagery and cannibalism and so on. People have kind of been like behaving with generally with like restraint and sort of a sense of collective self-interest. And that is sort of at odds with the prepper ideology, for want of a better term. So that's certainly like one irony of this situation. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. 
real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Listed to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Mark O'Connell, and we're talking about his latest book, Notes from an Apocalypse, A Personal Journey to the End of the World and Back. And Mark, to start us off in the second half, I want to talk about, I guess, the biggest bunker of all, the role that New Zealand plays in the fantasy of a, a lot of um, a lot of these people, and particularly the super rich. Yeah, I mean, I, very early on when I started to think about this, topic and to think about the ways in which people were preparing for the end of the world, I started to think of it in terms of layers. So, you know, the kind of lower layer would be doomsday prepping, would be people, you know, stockpiling food and, you know, guns and ammo and digging bunkers in their, you know, their backfield or whatever. And then the layer above that would be something like the facility in South Dakota, where you buy into uh, a kind of a business that provides for you. And the layer above that, then, I guess, would be something like New Zealand, where you have like a really kind of super wealthy kind of stratum of society. Um, I look at specifically the sort of um, Silicon Valley tech set where New Zealand, this is, around, I guess, like I'm talking about sort of uh, 2017, 2018, when the sort of perception sort of reached a, a fever point of New Zealand as this place where super wealthy like venture capitalists and tech entrepreneurs were buying up land in New Zealand as a kind of a hedge against the collapse of civilization in the rest of the world. Um, and there were a lot of news stories around at that time about um, Peter Thiel specifically. Um, and there was a lot of kind of speculation as to like, what's he doing in New Zealand? He bought this like huge chunk of land on the South Island um, and somehow managed to get himself New Zealand citizenship. Uh, and the idea was that he was buying this land as a place to retreat to because of the perception that civilization is very fragile in the rest of the world and New Zealand kind of and you can see that playing out now with the way that like the country is handling the virus I mean it seems to be the best place to be in the world right now of course you can't get in but you know if you were to be anywhere I think New Zealand probably would be the safest place to be and there's a lot of reasons why it sort of occupies this position in the kind of imagination of the rest of the world it's very far from everywhere else so if you've got like, you know, a nuclear strike or some kind of civilizational collapse event in the rest of the world, New Zealand is sort of out on its own. It's got an abundant supply of clean water and clean air. Um, a lot like it's a it's a vast country with a very kind of small population. Um, so there's lots of like wide open space. So uh, there's various reasons why it's, it's sort of perceived as a, a good bet for people who have the money and the means to sort of provide for uh, an escape route. I mean, again, ironically, it's also the perfect place right now because it has a very progressive liberal woman leader in charge. And of course, none of these people would like that. Well, that's right. I mean, and one of the things that happened quite, I mean, quite soon after I wrote the chapter where I went to New Zealand and, and sort of looked into this whole thing, Jacinda Ardern was, she was not that long in office at that point. She was quite new. 
And one of the first things her government did was really tighten up the laws around foreign ownership of land because there was a huge controversy about Teal when he um, somehow mysteriously became uh, a New Zealand citizen. And, you know, people were looking at this going, what's he up to? What's going on? What's his, like, what, what does he want with New Zealand? What, what's, um, and who are all these people who are buying land here? Um, so there was a real suspicion around that. And I think the politics of a lot of these people was a big a big question mark around it as well, particularly Teal, who has such extreme kind of hyper right-wing libertarian kind of um, views about democracy and so on. Yeah, I, I can remember we was talking about Peter Teal in, um, mm. when we talked about being a machine as well. And, and like, you know, you mentioned your fascination with this whole Silicon Valley set, Elon Musk obviously being another one of the um, mm. the most famous proponents. And also, I said I wanted to talk about Mars and he, you know, he's one of the one of the major proponents about this idea of a um, of a colony on Mars. And as you do in the book, I say colony very pointedly because you can't get away from the, the sort of colonial aspects of these people wanting to move to Mars, can you? No, and I mean, like, what's interesting is that it seems to be quite open. Like, they, the term that they use, their preferred term is Mars colonization. And they talk openly about building colonies on Mars, which seems strange in a lot of ways because it wouldn't be colonization there are no people who are like living creatures that we know of on mars so it's not like it's not what we would think of as like settler colonialism or whatever but the sort of the way that they imagine the future of human settlement on mars really draws very heavily on a kind of an idealized sort of whitewashed for want of a better term uh, version of colonial history and Elon Musk is like a major culprit when it comes to this. I mean, he's constantly drawing on this kind of like a fantasized version of American history of like, you know, manifest destiny and the expansion westward and the sort of taming of a savage land. All of these quite sort of problematic versions of American history are kind of um, dug up and dusted off and brought to bear on this project of getting to Mars, which I know, and that was one of the things that really interested me about a lot of this, actually. And it's the same with a lot of the language around New Zealand and uh, the preppers, a lot of it kind of rehabilitates old notions of kind of colonial expansion and the sort of colonial mentality. Yeah, it's the frontier, isn't it? That's particularly for Americans. I think this is where a lot of these ideas come from, fantasies that they can be like, you know, frontiersmen. Yeah, I mean, the preppers quite explicitly draw on this notion of like, you know, being pioneers and the kind of covered wagons kind of vision of American history. It's like a lot of it is about a return to that. And it's the same with Mars as well. It's like, you know, I talk about it in the book as being like a kind of a, a nostalgia for the future. Um, and it's very much like based in history. It's very much like dredging up these ideas from the past. And like when people talk about Mars, particularly when Americans talk about Mars, they're really talking about America. They're talking about like, um, kind of rebuilding the frontier and the kind of attitudes and ideologies that, you know, made America great, to use that term, and like reprojecting those onto Mars, this idea of like, you know, the vast expansion into this sort of empty landscape. That's something that can be kind of relived on Mars. This idea then of, of the sort of permanent colony on Mars, you go to a... Um... Uh, a conference in the book of of the sort of proponents of this again you know i mean this is you know little atoms historically has always been a, a show that's 
interested in science, interested in space travel, and the idea of us, you know, exploring Mars and and the and the solar system excites me a lot. The idea that we could permanently live on Mars seems to me just absolutely mendacious bullshit. And like, I I've, I know people who have wintered in Antarctica. And it seems like absolute, you know, literally hell on earth to me. But at least you can go outside and breathe the air. Like the yeah. idea that people could permanently live in colonies on Mars and not murder each other just seems to be nonsense. It just, I mean, the, the impression that I got of it from, like, reading the, like, books, the significant number of books that have been written by Mars colonialism or Mars colonization enthusiasts um elon musk's fairly voluminous body of like you know interviews and so on about this and also attending uh that five-day conference in in la is that like you know you don't even have to read too deeply between the lines of what these people are saying to realize that it would be even if it were possible which seems to be a pretty big if it would be the most hellish environment possible so like the kind of weird contradiction around this is that for me, at least, like when people talk about colonizing Mars, they, they, they speak about it as, as a backup planet. So the idea is that humanity needs a backup planet um, in case, as Elon Musk puts it, something goes wrong with Earth, whether it's like, you know, an asteroid strikes or somehow climate change makes the planet unlivable or, you know, a global pandemic or w- whatever it is, it threatens the wipeout of life on Earth. Then you've got this like second location where there is a small kind of quorum of human life ready to kind of repopulate the species or whatever. And it's particularly when it comes to climate change, it seems like this is a really like deeply wrong-headed idea because the biggest existential threat we face is climate change. There's no question. You know, it's like it's a threat to our way of life. It's a threat to the planet, like to life on the planet. And yet even the worst projections, the worst scenarios of climate change come nowhere close to what it would be like to live on Mars. You know, Mars is like so radically inhospitable to human life. So like it does seem, like in some ways, I don't want to be too cynical about this because there are, you know, I do write in the book about sort of like going through the looking glass a little bit and like, you know, listening to Elon Musk talk and listening to some of these Mars colonization enthusiasts talk and, and seeing the sort of like, radical like childlike wonder that these people bring to bear on the idea of like you know exploring the universe and because i think like one of the things that interests me about this is that the idea of the future that people you know the spacex people and elon musk the idea of the future that they have is like otherwise dead the idea that our future as a species involves exploring uh the outer reaches of the galaxy and colonizing other worlds and so on that's an idea that seems to me to have died somewhere in the late 20th century it died with the sort of slow atrophying of the space program and the end of the cold war um you know things like the challenger disaster all of these things kind of put paid to that idea that this was our sort of destiny and someone like elon musk is trying to rehabilitate that again trying to sort of reclaim this idea of the future from the past and i think there's something something quite touching about that but at the same time as you say it's a kind of an an insane idea and the idea that so much money and so many resources and so much you know intelligence is being thrown at this kind of crazy um non-problem 
uh, seems to me to be interesting in a lot of ways. Well, also, I mean, the the people that envisage this this sort of future for us back in the you know at the height of NASA were people like Carl Sagan, who were you know who were a bit hippie-ish in a lot mm. of their ideas as well. And what's fascinating now is these. My favourite example in in the book was the guy who. I can't remember who it was, but somebody at the conference basically his idea was that you you know you could escape the tyranny of living under a government on Earth by going to Mars and becoming a serf to to Amazon for five years Amazon, or something. Yeah. No, and I think like it is like if you look at you know Elon Musk again, or you know the people who are and he's got this like huge coterie of like fanboys. They're all like their their sort of vision of of this future is like very kind of post-democratic actually a lot of these people don't really like what they believe in is a kind of a hyper libertarian version of the future where you're kind of you know you get to mars you are identified with a corporation whether it's spacex or amazon or whatever not a nation state and the idea is that the nation state is like essentially you know dead weight and what's interesting and sort of like slightly melancholy i think about this whole vision of the future is that up until the end of the 20th century i suppose like this like the future belonged to a collective vision even you know something like nasa was like it was like a big government project it was like for all mankind it was supported by taxpayers it was like a public good you know and now all of these kind of projects are the sole preserve of like hyper wealthy individuals, people like Musk, a lot of people who made like money in tech, you know, um, Jeff Bezos is, a, is another proponent of intergalactic space travel and so on. And, you know, it's the preserve now of billionaires of, of individuals. We're nearly out of time and there's so much more in this book that we've not had a chance to talk about. You, you take a trip to uh, Chernobyl and um, there's a, the book ends with you, I guess, coming to some sort of, what would be the word? Some sort of realization. There's a fantastic use of the um, the Doctor Seuss story, the Lorax, which I found really moving. But as I said at the beginning, we are, you know, we do find ourselves in in something of an apocalyptic situation right now. And I want to end talking about that. And you you've just had published in the um, New York Times Magazine an essay about um, about your own hometown Dublin in this um, in this pandemic. Tell us something about now. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's like, well, it's just been a weird time to, it's a weird time to do anything, of course, for everyone, but it's been a weird time to publish a book, particularly a book about the apocalypse. And yeah, I guess I've been like called on a little bit to speak about this particular time and the like strange resonances with what I've, what I've written about. And it's strange because like, you know, the discussion around the book so far has been understandably, I suppose, a sense that it's like extremely timely, but at the same time, it's it's perceived timeliness is you know uh, it's sheer coincidence. It's and no, like very little of what I write about in the book anticipates this particular situation. So it's been strange and sort of like dramatically ironic to have to be talking about this apocalyptic kind of anxiety and so on at a time when something like what I'm writing about in the book has has actually happened. And I guess like I still haven't quite got my head around how deeply weird that is, how like 
sort of insane that is that it's that it's happened this way. So yeah, but at the same time, like I'm, you know, as as you say, by the kind of end of the book, the time that I'm writing about, I did come to some kind of accommodation with these fears and anxieties by the time I was finished writing the book, and a lot of that had to do with like just uh, sort of circumstances in my own life becoming apparent again. Um, that was like a real life changing kind of situation, but for like, for whatever reason, and a lot of it, I guess had to do with actually finishing the book and sort of leaving aside the heaviness of the topic. But by the time I finished writing the book, I was less inclined to be so wrapped up in the future. So wrapped up in like the various kind of threats of what might happen. And I, I feel like I'm, I'm still kind of there a little bit. Like it's, it's, it's really hard to say because like, who knows what the future is going to bring with this pandemic and i feel quite tentative and quite sort of uh, reluctant to make any kind of grand statements i mean even that piece that i wrote for the new york times magazine today it's very much like just a direct observation of things that i had been feeling i mean the brief was to write about you know what have we learned what have we learned in the sort of eight or ten weeks or whatever it is of, of lockdown so far and i kind of managed to evade that brief somewhat by just like writing about the experience of like feeling homesick while being at home. And I, I don't know if there's anything to be learned from that, but it does seem to be, it does seem to be like something that I wouldn't have expected because I'm home all the time. And yet at the same time, there's a sense of like uncanniness of walking around Dublin and cycling around Dublin and not having access to the world that I lived in, even though I'm in the place where I've always been. So I guess everyone is going through some version of that kind of strange, uncanny experience of their own personal world. So I've been talking to Mark O'Connell. We've been talking about his latest book, Notes from an Apocalypse, A Personal Journey to the End of the World and Back, which is out in the UK from Granta. Mark, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. Thank you, Neil. I enjoyed it. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.